At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 20th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. United Russia. Yes, they are. The party of Putin swept into power while well, they were never out of power. But uh, turnout was low in this round of elections in Russia, perhaps because the Russians were so happy with the job United Russia was doing. They figured they had this election in the bag and they were right. It seems to have been in the bag. Opposition candidates could not get newspapers to run their ads, radio stations to air their commercials, or indeed printers to print their leaflets. Yeah, a leaflet's going to undo Putin. Today, Reuters got into more details about irregularities in Russian polling places. In Mordovia's capital, Saransk, a man dressed in a sports jacket and blue trousers came to polling station 591 to cast his vote. Then, 20 minutes later, he was back putting his vote in the ballot box. Election officials at the polling station declined to explain why people were allowed to vote twice. At polling station 424 in Mordovia, Reuters reporters observed a blonde man with a beard and a woman with dyed orange hair voting, then re-entering the line to vote. Hmm, dyed orange hair. In another voting station, the election official, Svetlana Borlina, brought in about 10 ballot papers wrapped up in a red raincoat and mixed them up with other ballots being counted on the table. She declined to comment when asked why she had carried ballots in a raincoat, except to say, what, you think I should put galoshes on them? Reuters reporters routinely went to voting stations. They'd count the people who came in to vote, and then the official numbers would be twice what they counted. This happened in the Bashkoristan region in the foothills of the Urals. Reuters reporters counted 799 voters casting their ballots. The vote later that day turned out 1,689. So what did Russian election officials do? Well, they observed Reuters reporters who were counting the people coming in with an electronic counter, and they decided to try to take the counter away from the reporter, citing, quote, strange manipulations with the object, which, quote, could testify to the presence of an object of radioactive nature, which is a threat to health and life. Yet, despite all these irregularities, Putin's approval rating, as Trump has often cited, is still at 82%, though by official tallies, it's closer to 182%. I want to leave you with one actual fact, an actual thing 
that actually happened. And this is uh, in an article by Max Boot. He quoted Lauren Goodrich of the Stratford Geopolitical Consultancy. And she points out, over the last year, the average Russian's monthly wage fell almost 10%. It slipped below 450 US dollars. And now the average Russian is earning less money than the average person in China. That's right. We know the Chinese economy is booming, but when you think about the average Chinese person, the word peasant comes to mind. When you think about the average Russian person, peasant seems, I don't know, stuck in the Soviet era or before. No. Putin's Russia has seen such a decline in wealth and income that they are now behind China. 82%. On the show today, I spiel about commercials. They used to hold a much more prominent role in our culture and be cut from a more confident cloth. But first, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd is here. This interview was recorded before it was announced that George H.W. Bush had told an associate that he would be voting for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. Perhaps that's not surprising. As Maureen Dowd says, the nonagenarian former president is fundamentally a decent man. And she found out pretty goofy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Vivire pericolosamente, living dangerously, a phrase used by the Indonesian dictator Sukarno in a speech he was channeling Mussolini. It gave rise to the novel The Year of Living Dangerously, later the Mel Gibson movie. Dictators, perilous times, a war correspondent of a sort. It's not dissimilar from what my next guest, Maureen Dowd, conjures in her new book, The Year of Voting Dangerously, The Derangement of American Politics. Hello, Maureen. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mike. And before we even start on the substance, I want to talk about words, a couple of words. Bumfuzzling? I enjoyed that one. That is an old, you know, I'm a native Washingtonian, and back in the days when they wore two-toned shoes and linen outfits, and it was all these old Southerners drinking bourbon and branch water, they used the word bumfuzzling. <laughs> so there is this other word that you and I share, and I'm pretty sure, I think back on my history, I saw it in a column that you wrote, and I was so ensorcelled by it, the word is ensorcelled, that I began using it on NPR. And at one point, there was a full calendar year where a LexisNexis search of ensorcelled would show that only two people were using ah. it in the media, me and you. <laughs> oh, well, guess what? This is so funny. That's my favorite word, and um, I used it, and then I think uh, Aaron Sorkin, who's a friend of mine, used it in one of his TV shows. So that was a high point of my life. It seems to me that you subscribe to the Richard Ben Kramer theory that parse the policy proposals all you want, but what we really need to know when we're electing a president is who the person is. Uh, am I right? Do you think it's much more important to judge the person than the policies? 
Yes, and even then we might be doomed because <laughs> um, I know I'm, I've become kind of a nihilist this way, but I covered W and he said we were going to have a humble foreign policy and then he drove the family station wagon into the globe and committed the worst foreign policy blunder in American history, I think. I covered Obama, and it seemed like he was this magical personality who was going to be able to bring red and blue together and whites and blacks. And then it turned out he was sort of a introvert who didn't like politics, which, as James Carville told me, is like Peyton Manning not liking football, given what he accomplished mm -hmm. so young. So maybe, though, with Obama, the lesson there would be don't get insourceled by the personality. I mean, if you listen to the things Obama said he wanted to accomplish from a policy perspective, that was the real stuff. That was the stuff that he did. That was actually more predictive of what his presidency would be like than the speeches. Okay, well, here is my prediction of doom, which is why probably nothing I've done in my profession matters. I think the problem is that, and you see this not only with the White House, but with other alphas and other professions, sometimes they get the top job. And right at the moment when they're ratified by everyone, and they should be full of confidence, all of their insecurities come out and they're gremlins, and they can get very self-destructive. But in the case of presidents, you can never predict what historical thing is going to hit and mm -hmm. how it's going to hit. And here's an example with W. You know, the Times has these wonderful photographers and they take pictures of historical moments. And we had a big picture of the moment when Andy Card walked over to W when he was reading the goat book to the children to tell him that this plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. And they were going to get rid of the picture because they recycle them sometimes. And I'm like, you can't get rid of that picture. It's history. I'll yeah. put it in my office. And after two days, I had to take it out of my office because I kept looking in W's eyes. And in his eyes is the bill for all the things he hadn't studied, and he wasn't really ready in many ways to be president. And you can see that bill coming due. You can see the fear radiating from his eyes. And it was so disturbing. I, I could not keep it in my office. So you never know what historical event is going to hit, how it's going to hit into their insecurities or personality gremlins, and how that all mixes up. You uh, knew H.W. Bush really well. And I think your relationship, as you present here, a lot of your correspondence, it flourished after he left the White House. This is my funniest story in the book. When I started covering the senior Bush White House as a New York Times correspondent, President Bush, I think, was very disappointed because he had wanted a classic Times reporter with a name like Clyde Farnsworth III. Mm -hmm. And then he got me. And in fact, his pollster, Bob Teeter, one time took me out for a martini and said, we expected something different. They, they expected you to work for the Daily News. Yes, they, the they ethnic said, woman. Because you're, a, you're from a big Irish family, not a blue-blooded, uh, white-shoed exactly. New York Timesman. Yeah. But Bush Sr., got used to me and was very fair with me. And we ended up having this strange kind of screwball comedy relationship. And he would write me notes because that's how he 
preferred to express himself with these little notes. Even through all my years and years of severe criticism of his son, somehow we maintained this relationship. So when I was covering W's White House, he made a rare trip to Kennebunkport for a family event. And I was up there and I was in my room and Carl Rove calls me and he's like, "Um, Bush Sr. would like to see you if it can be arranged without his son finding out. So it was like two teenagers (laughs) sneaking out of the house. But the funny thing was, so there were two sets of Secret Service there. The father had his, the son had his. And how were we going to have coffee and elude all these Secret Service guys, Um, which I kind of give this 90-year-old guy credit for trying to sneak out of the house like a teenager, although in the end it it proved... uh, beyond our capacity to achieve. I want to ask you about, speaking of Jimmy Stewart and screwball comedies, bringing up baby. His baby was George W. Bush. How does a guy like that, a seemingly great father and very kind to you and patrician though he was, a a loving man and also gave his son all the advantages. I don't think George W. Bush was a monster. I don't think he is a person who is evil. I think he was incompetent and not up for the job, but also convinced himself that he was. You know, how does that happen? Well, the funny thing is, I interviewed people like Mario Cuomo when he was thinking of running and Colin Powell when he was thinking of running, and they're the sons of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And they were all kind of wrapped around the axle of, were they worthy? But the people who never get wrapped around that axle are people like W. Dan Quayle, Sarah Palin, and now Donald Trump. But also Cuomo's son, who's now our governor, Powell's son, who ran the FCC. They all had really powerful and entitled sons. Right. So sometimes the people who don't think whether they would be good at the job or the ones who kind of waltz into it. Yeah. If you could create a better, not perfect, but a great candidate or great president from all the presidents you've covered, what parts of each would you take? You know, I would love the Alon and Witt of a JFK. You know, I went to Cuba with Obama and I was so proud that he was representing our country. But Obama, I think the problem with him is you can't be above the fray in politics because politics is the fray. Mm -hmm. So I would take LBJ's desire to use elbow grease and really work it and work the angles because that's how you get legislation passed. And that's where Obama kind of missed the boat. What about Bill Clinton? His intellect, his curiosity? Definitely. I would add those in. What about George W. Bush? We haven't said too many nice things about him. What are his traits? Well, you know, I covered him when he was running for Texas governor, and he had a certain crackle, and he had a certain appeal. And I do feel sad sometimes because I've talked to a lot of people recently who have seen him at different things. He has charm, and he has humor, and I think he could have done some good things, but unfortunately— Iraq and Katrina are things that it's very hard to get beyond. And this is from the person who he nicknamed the Cobra. That's right. (laughs) You know, I take that as a compliment because I've been called a lot worse. And uh, there's a certain kind of reptilian glamour about the Cobra. (laughs) Yeah, it is a dashing snake, isn't it? Yeah, it's dashing. Better than a cotton mouth or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or a boa constrictor, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, And George... 
H.W. Bush, you know, everyone just talks about what a gentleman he is, how, what a decent person he is, or is that antithetical to the LBJ traits that you talked about, the ability to get things through Congress with elbow grease and by um, his pecker in your pocket type statements like LBJ was given to? No, I think he was he was really bipartisan. And I think he believed in like inviting people over more the old advice and consent thing where he would have people over for cocktails and he really worked that. He he didn't like domestic policy, though. He liked foreign policy. He loved part of being the boys club of foreign policy. And uh, he was a decent guy. I mean, you know, he did things. There was Willie Horton and Clarence Thomas and things that I can't give him a pass on. But in other ways, I really think he was, as John Meacham called him, kind of the last gentleman. And what were the Achilles heels of the presidents you covered? Oh, well, I think you know (laughs) some of the Achilles heels. Um, What is it that uh, Lyndon Johnson once said the two things that always get presidents in trouble or politicians in trouble are uh, sex and envy. Yeah. So George W. Bush had envy of his dad, yes. I guess you could say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But Obama doesn't seem to – well, he hasn't gotten in trouble and he's rising in the ratings. He's rising in the ratings yeah. because people are so appalled at uh, this whole race, Trump dragging everything into the gutter. So they're – and we're being reminded of the Clintons selling the White House as 1600 Pennsylvania to donors. And so as we get reminded of the Michigas of the Clintons, the kind of coarseness of Trump, Obama keeps rising and rising. And I think the same for H.W. Bush, yeah. because, you know, they represent someone, whatever their flaws, that you can be proud is representing the country. Hillary is so hard to know, and you're one of the few reporters who have access to Trump and have gotten to know Trump over the years. What do you think that we're missing about Trump? What are some insights into his personality that you think we're getting wrong? I think what's interesting about this election is that we have two of the most famous people on the planet, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and yet we are still trying to figure out who they are. In Hillary's case, it's because she has this Picasso-esque image where, you know, we've known her for a long time, but even her own staff every week sends her a memo about how to bring out the real Hillary. She never seems to be able to bring out the real Hillary. And in Donald Trump's case, he has a Janice face with these two sides. Is he the New York liberal, bon vivant, who's sort of charming? Or is he this kind of bigot who is very conservative and brings out all this hate? So which one is he? I think... In my opinion, Donald Trump's lack of knowledge is disqualifying. I do believe his temperament is disqualifying. I don't know if his racism per se, if you want to call it that, is disqualifying. It shows up in his policy proposals. But I wanted to ask you about his sexism. What is your take on his sexism? Do you think just alone his sexism should be called that and is disqualifying? You know, this is kind of a complicated issue because... He has always treated me with respect and as a professional. So I see the comments on the Howard Stern show and they are, you know, it's like being transported back to Vegas and the Rat Pack and a lot of them are unacceptable. But then you read about 
he was the first person to give a woman, Barbara Reese, the chance to actually be a foreman and run buildings in the construction industry. And so he broke that barrier. So it's weird. It's like a mixed bag. I mean, of course, his comments about women are not acceptable. But on the other hand, in business, he's given women a lot of opportunities. That's true. But I think he perhaps is clearly sexist to some percentage of women. I think it's the equivalent of some guy who says to black people, well, you're one of the good ones. I mean, Trump looks at you. He looks at his daughter. He looks at some women who don't, you know, conform to his immediate reaction of, oh, she's a bimbo or, oh, she's unattractive. And he'll, you know, accept those women. But that doesn't mean he's not sexist. No, I agree with you. Maureen Dowd is the author of The Year of Voting Dangerously, The Derangement of American Politics. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you, Mike. The moon landing. Did it happen? Yes, it happened. But there is a new fake documentary questioning if it happened. You'll be deluged with Operation Avalanche in tomorrow's gist. And now the spiel. The NFL season has commenced. I get a dollar for not saying it kicked off. And with it, it is the only time I ever watch television commercials. Advertisers know this. They, in a willful rebuke to feminist theory, actively court the male gaze. And what I'm seeing ain't special. Gray-haired guy making goo-goo googly eyes at his foxy life partner. Cue message about erections lasting four hours. Bud Light still trotting out Seth and Amy. Bud Light proudly supports everyone's right to marry whoever they want. To the groom! And the groom. Smart to enlist celebrities who've built up enough credibility that they could spend it on a Bud Light commercial. And then there's this one. His leagues aren't just jeans to him. They're freedom pants. Every little fiber just cheering him on like, go kill it, Eric. You're the guy. This Lee Jeans ad is in the strong tradition of a cool ad for an inherently uncool product. And you know, everyone wants their product to be cool, but sometimes you got to be realistic. There's such a mismatch, a gap between the coolness of the product and the aspiration of the marketing guy that you have to pull it back a little bit. It's implausible. There are some exceptions to this. Axe is not at all cool, but if you pretend it's cool, a 14-year-old boy might buy it. And any light beer ad can work because light beer is so freaking awful. So you just pair it with a joke and you've justified the beer's existence. By the way, beer that advertises on TV, it reminds me a little bit of colleges that advertise on TV. Just not the best in class. In fact, I would guess that per capita, the colleges that advertise on TV drink more beer that advertises on TV than non-TV advertised beer. Speaking of which, I came across a great quote from a 1999 Wall Street Journal article about Zima. You don't know what Zima was? Don't be afraid to admit it. Don't be Zimaphobic, as Donald Trump says. She called these Americans every name in the book, racist, sexist, Zimaphobic. So a Zimaphobic person would be afraid of the clear malt beverage that was one of the biggest disasters in beverage history. Coors lost an estimated $180 million trying to shove the stuff down consumers' throats. 
It worked out well in the beginning, debuts in 94, everyone tries it, no one likes it. Sales dropped 50% in 1995, 25% in 1996, so cut to 1999. Coors cannot admit people hate our Zima. Coors instead says they were advertising it wrong. Here's the journal quote. After brainstorming, a consensus emerged Zima should be positioned as refreshing, an alternative to beer. Quote, it's sort of like, duh. You can look at it and say, what took you guys so long, says the head marketer. But it was the first time we were communicating a specific benefit. And with that insight, Zima failed equally as terribly. But it was a good name. That's why so many late night comedians joked about it. Of course, back then, jokes about commercials were the mainstay of comedy. You guys seen these uh, Meltdown dog biscuit commercials where they show the dogs being ashamed of their bad breath? (laughs) Have you guys seen the commercials? Time was, the answer was yes. Now it's no. And you know who else I think hasn't seen the commercials? The people who make commercials. But you'd think they'd have at least seen Mad Men, which taught us a couple key lessons about commercials. Sex sells. Says who? Just so you know, the people who talk that way think that monkeys can do this. So according to Mad Men, the smart people knew that in the 1960s. And yet yesterday, I saw this commercial for a frozen food and it had this tagline. Food you want to fork. Introducing Devour. If the product puts the same bad taste in my mouth as the ad does, I'm eating pizza. Which raises the question, is it delivery or is it DiGiorno? Which raises the next obvious question. Who the hell refers to pizza as delivery? Wow, that's a good slice. Where'd it come from? Let me tell you, it was delivery. What the hell does that mean, Myrtle? In no way does that answer my question. That's a good steak. Where is it from? Oh, the oven. Screw you and your gnomic pronouncements, Myrtle. Commercials are now so small bore. They have such a tiny cultural footprint. I remember the days of advertising that wasn't afraid to take the big swing, the grand gesture, the grand am, like this Pontiac ad from 1988. It wasn't ironic. It wasn't meant to create a moment or a little slice of meaning. It said, drive a fucking Pontiac, you punks. Let me read a description of what was going on. I got this from Facebook. Uh, They spoke to a guy who worked in the marketing promotions department of Pontiac's advertising agency. He was at the announcement of the Pontiac Dealers Convention, 1998. And he says, when the extended two-minute version of the Ride Pontiac Ride video was shown for the first time, Bob, that's the advertising guy, tells me that when they saw the video, the assembled Pontiac dealers went completely apeshit crazy. The projectionist had to run it twice more before they would allow the Pontiac director of marketing to finish his address. It made the singer and the composer overnight millionaires, and they deserve it from a commercial. What do we get now in commercials? We get a cute Asian family, but the baby's afraid of a pet dog. So dad has some ideas. He goes on Amazon, punches a few buttons, 
and they order up a lion outfit for the dog. And now the baby likes the dog now that he's a lion. What a terrible, terrible message. It teaches the kid, you should approach lions, but be scared of dogs. The dog is the family's pet. He's in the house. The kid is going to have to learn to like the dog. And what baby doesn't like dogs, but likes lions? Is this poor dog going to have to dress in lion drag his whole life to get this freaking baby to like him? Amazon, where your coddled infant can be indulged to prefer lions to dogs. Anyway, I don't blame Amazon. I don't blame the parents. I don't blame lions. Okay, I kind of blame lions. I blame the commercial. It wants so bad to be a moment, to be 30 seconds of meaning, of connection. I've got a better idea of a tagline they could go with. Get on your Amazon and rock! And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is ensorcelled by Flim Flammery. Just producer Chris Berube has been bamboozled by Haberdashery. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, opposes inexact writing, which befuzzens the line between standard written English and literary hornswogglelia. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, strikes the balance between the loose world of politics and the oft-saturnine halls of journalism. The gist, we can't help you if you're ensorcelled, but I am inventing a device to unmix your cocktails, the de-swizzle stick. Oomperu, depru, du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>